Hey there! Welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's first joint address to Congress. I'm going to answer some listener questions, and then we're going to talk about Joe Biden's administration as a whole, the first 100 days of his presidency, and how you gauge success. Also, I'm a little bit sick, so my voice is a little husky. (laughs) Bear with me. On Wednesday night, Joe Biden gave his first State of the Union address to a joint session of masked-up, socially-distanced Congress people and honored guests. Not the most lively crowd, I'm sure you can imagine. Normally, the State of the Union is attended by roughly 1,600 people, but this year we're living that COVID-safe life, so it was not, as the youths would say, lit. Right out of the gate, I want to acknowledge how cool it was to see two women holding the positions of Vice President and Speaker of the House. We got the right to vote 101 years ago, and progress isn't always as fast as it should be. But when we get there, it feels great. Um, and I love it. A few more things to get off of my chest before we dive headfirst into that speech. Nancy Pelosi is capable of the biggest and smallest claps in Congress. She famously gave Trump a clap too big for a mouse during his State of the Union, but popped up for Biden clapping with the volume and vigor of a high school softball coach. She's got range, and I appreciate it. Next, if you are a member of Congress, it is never okay to boo the President of the United States. I can't stand it. I didn't like it when the Democrats booed Trump. I don't like it when Republicans boo Biden. You should. There's just a certain amount of respect that you need to show for the office. If I want to boo the president, or you, listener, we're citizens, so we can go ahead and boo the president. But if you are a member of Congress, I'm going to need you to suck it up and act like an adult. Next, Bernie Sanders. He is the worst audience member ever. I don't know why people keep inviting him to things. He clearly doesn't want to be there. I think whatever hard candy wrapper he's had in his pocket for the last 10 years could probably muster the same levels of enthusiasm. Just let the man stay home. On the other side of that enthusiasm spectrum, we have Vice President Harris's husband and number one hype man, Doug Emhoff, who seems so happy to be anywhere. (laughs) And Elizabeth Warren fist pumping to the end of child poverty. I love it. We're excited. Overall, I thought the speech was good. I've seen better. I've seen worse. I thought parts of it were incredibly effective. Parts of it sounded like I was listening to a PBS documentary. All in all, I'd say we were probably at like a B plus. But uh, if you asked liberal pundits how they felt about it, they'd probably tell you that it should have won a Grammy. Every single sentence had a very clear point to it. it ha- and every line of it had that Biden humility in it. It was bracing to hear a speech delivered at times by a whisper. His use of voice modulation was rather extraordinary. It was amazing to be able to have a conversational tone, almost as if he were channeling a FDR fireside chat. Guys, get a hold of yourselves. I mean, he's not Brad Pitt. Come on now. We don't need to start saying... It was really beautiful. I mean, it was beautiful. It is so personal and so intimate. And his voice, that kind of grandfatherly, whispery voice. Okay, stop. Enough. You're ruining it. 
Biden's delivery was good, but I feel way weirder about saying that after listening to MSNBC and CNN talk about his sexy, intimate, ghostly grandpa whisper. And if you think that you'd get a more honest, clear-eyed take from right-wing media, you might be surprised to know that they thought it was... It was an odd speech other than someone who believes deeply that a socialist vision of America, a big government vision of America, is what the American people want. Joe Biden scared the hell out of me tonight. He looked weak as commander-in-chief and he embraced socialism. The words of this speech sounded like what you would hear from a 15-year-old if you gave him a credit card with no credit limit on it, except the words came out of the mouth of an adult. Hey, uh, Chris Christie, you might want to tighten up that example, bro, because you're losing the audience. But yeah, okay, so I mean, honestly, cable news is ridiculous. Between these two takes, I don't think that anybody is really assessing the president accurately, whether that means giving him accolades for the things he's doing well or taking him to task over the things that he's not doing well. Both sides in the situation are so polarized that we were not really getting an honest take or evaluation, which sucks. But all in all, don't treat their commentary like anything more than entertainment because that is really all that it is, which is probably why cable news pundits were also really worked up about how boring they thought that Biden's speech was. It's like he's a corpse. I mean, you can't, you can't, it's unwatchable. It was so boring. I just wanted to, you know, where there's original watching this thing and go to sleep. And then, of course, we get shots of Ted Cruz sleeping in the audience. Mm. It was one of the most dull speeches that I've ever seen. Republican leader in the House, that would be Mr. McCarthy of California. This whole thing could have just been an email. Okay, so full disclosure, normally I enthusiastically support people trolling other people about how this meeting just should have been an email. Like, I think that that could probably be written on my tombstone <laughs> um, for how often I say it, but more how often I feel it. But that's probably also because the meetings that I'm attending are not a joint address to Congress. It was only an hour long, guys. Pull it together. And honestly, it should be a little boring, right? I mean, I feel like Donald Trump has really skewed our perception on this because say what you will about the guy, he wasn't boring. But he also wasn't a very good president. So which of those two things would you rather have? I mean, if your standard for a good president is their wow factor and showmanship, the State of the Union is going to sound like this. <laughs> a week where you don't come out here and choke? You may be G.I. Joe this summer, right now you're a G.I. Joke. How's that for showmanship? Very exciting. The John Cena hype train, it never stops, and that's great, but he's not qualified to be our president. You get my meaning. Biden is, frankly, boring, and I think that that's a good thing. So with that, let's talk about my man, JB. And by JB, I obviously mean... Biden. Biden's speech was ambitious. His vision board for America included electric vehicle charging stations, ending racism, curing cancer, and everything in between. Let's raise the minimum wage to $15. Let's lower deductibles for working families on the Affordable Care and Affordable Care Act. And let's lower prescription drug costs. Four additional years of public education for every person in America. Access 
to quality, affordable childcare, rebuild trust between law enforcement and the people they serve. The country supports immigration reform. We should act. Replacing 100% of the nation's lead pipes and service lines. We need a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. With the plans outlined tonight, we have a real chance to root out systemic racism that plagues America. Let's end cancer as we know it. It's within our power. It's within our power to do it. If you're leery of government spending, listening to the speech may have felt similar to going through checkout at the grocery store. You're watching the cashier move things over the scale and you're just watching your total rise and rise and rise. And then at the end, they ask you to pay. And it can be scary, right? One of the things that I thought uh, watching that speech is, damn, dude, slow down. We just passed COVID relief. We can't collect taxes nearly as fast as you can spend money. Starting to sound like Bernie Sanders. These things, they sound great, but money is real. This credit card has a limit, homie. But then Biden said this. Folks, as I told every world leader I've ever met with over the years, it's never, ever, ever been a good bet to bet against America, and it still isn't. We're the United States of America. There is not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our minds to if we do it together. Honestly, I felt pretty called out. I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like Biden heard me doubting him and then responded in real time. And I'm going to admit, it gave me pause. When did we as a nation start settling for so much less? When did things become too big or too hard for America? When did we as a country become so jaded and so cynical, so ready to accept defeat? I recognized it in my own thinking. When he was saying all of those things that he wanted to do, I was like, meh, too hard. We can't afford it. Can't be done. Congress will never agree. But America is the country that invented MRIs, cell phones, space shuttles, Google, jeans, for God's sake, the telephone. There were only five years between inventing the airplane and the Ford Model T. Think about how quickly the world can change in five years. Consider this. We spent 20 years developing the polio vaccine. And in less than one year, we developed three different vaccines for COVID. And then in five months, administered 243 million doses. That's how we do things in America. As the wise prophet Vanilla Ice once said, if there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Sorry, I've got a weird energy today. I need you to bear with me. Anyway, bearing all of that in mind, my defeatism had me feeling kind of like a chump. Why can't America revolutionize clean energy? Why can't we cut child poverty by 50%? Why can't every American access the internet? Why are we still allowing lead pipes to poison the water in low-income communities? Why can't workers have the right to a good job at a fair wage? Why can't we kick cancer's ass? When did I start accepting that these things were pipe dreams? Things that, you know, they'd be great, but we can't have them. It's not possible. When did I start betting against America? But then I had to pump the brakes. Was I overcorrecting? Was Joe Biden's weird grandpa whisper sort of seducing me into a Bernie Sanders level of socialism? 
how can I denounce Bernie but back Biden when they're both spending money like it's Black Friday and they've got nothing to lose? I thought about this a lot, and here's what I came up with. America has seriously underinvested in its social programs, and nothing rubbed salt in the wound with that quite like COVID-19. We had been kicking the can down the road for decades, and when it came time to really lean into our social programs, we realized that that was a mistake. That's one of the reasons that COVID relief cost so much. The system needed to administer aid. It was actually just a fossil, or like a, a used napkin on the ground, in terms of its efficacy. The second thing that I stumbled on was the recognition that I was being forced into a false choice. Hear me out, okay? A two-party system in a country this polarized is a perfect recipe for disaster. It's trash in almost every example, but it's relevant here because I realized that I was being forced to identify as one of two things, a fiscally conservative Republican or a socialist liberal. These two choices, as always, leave no room for a middle ground, or the idea that both things are necessary. Generally, Republicans are critical of government spending and what they describe as government overreach, whereas Democrats, on the other hand, support big government and think that government spending facilitates social good. Both of these ideologies are right, and both of them are also wrong. It really depends on the situation. I think that trying to force ourselves into these black and white choices, is government spending good, is government spending bad, it's sort of reductive, actually. It, it doesn't capture the complexity of the problem because, truthfully, government spending is neither good nor bad. If you had a government that spent more money than it had, you would end up like Greece, having riots in the street for bread. But if you had a country that never really spent money or spent it only when it absolutely must, you would end up with a population that was undereducated, receiving poor health care, and probably largely unemployed. So then, how should we evaluate the merits of government spending? For me, it breaks down to a pretty basic idea. What are we paying for, and what do we hope to gain from it? This is an area where I can actually get a little hawkish. I don't actually mind the government spending money, but I really cannot stand the government wasting money. Money. For example, we sent 74,000 stimulus checks to dead people. All in all, it's a relatively inconsequential sum to the US budget, but money is money and we shouldn't just be throwing it out the window. To add insult to injury, California, the state that I currently live in, has such a terrible unemployment system that it was ineffective in preventing $11 billion in unemployment fraud. That kind of shit makes me crazy. Crazy. Do you know what we could have done with that money? Literally anything else. We gave it to Scott Peterson. If you guys don't remember him, he murdered his wife and unborn child. Yeah, that guy is collecting unemployment checks. We were being defrauded from prison. Scott Peterson got unemployment money. Of course he's unemployed. He's in jail. Great job, California. Really proud. I also can't stand the tax cuts and job... Oof. I also can't stand the Tax Cuts and Job Act. That was the Trump administration's crown jewel of tax reform legislation. It paved the way for massive companies to pay even less in taxes than they already were. Not only that, 
but it benefited Americans making $200,000 the most, and unfortunately, it actually hurt low-income Americans. Meaning that it added $2 trillion to our national debt without really providing much of a benefit to low-income and middle-class Americans. And this is where Biden started to gain ground with me. If you suspend your preconceived notions about government spending and leave your political party at the door, you'll be able to come at this honestly and just ask yourself, are we spending money to invest? And what, in, what will that investment yield in return? It's simple enough, right? The American Jobs Plan wants to invest in renewable energy, infrastructure, and the care economy. Do these things yield a return? Yeah, absolutely. Anybody that's had to drive over a bunch of potholes or sit in traffic for longer than they need to can tell you that investing in tr our transportation infrastructure is a good call. Anybody that has been watching the news and seen wildfires ravage California or extreme weather just decimate Texas or hurricane season, these are all the impacts of climate change. So if you are watching and you see that climate change is an existential threat to our existence, yeah, I'll say that investing in preventing it yields a return. Anybody that has a parent, which, spoiler alert, would be all of us, is one day going to get old and need care, will yield a return from investing in the care economy. If you're not sure what that means, Biden is basically talking about creating jobs and raising wages for essential home care workers, the people that are coming into your home and helping your dad because he can no longer take himself to the bathroom, or people that need to come in and help you administer medications. The American Jobs Plan invests in jobs that will provide home and community-based care for individuals who would otherwise need to wait as long as five years to get the services that they badly need. Not only that, but it does all of this with the goal of creating jobs. I fundamentally believe that most problems are truly economic problems. People put themselves at risk when they're afraid that they don't have enough money to provide for their kids or their family or even just to, to reach the quality of life that they want for themselves. Desperate people are dangerous people. Not only that, but greedy people are dangerous people. Business leaders looking to increase profit or grow their business will treat workers without protections like garbage. They will erode human dignity, not always, but often enough that it's a problem. Maybe they're just looking out for themselves. They want to amass more wealth, build a bigger business, grow. These things aren't evil. In fact, I would, I would even argue that they are American and industrious, but it leaves a lot of people behind. And lately, the people that are getting left behind are not just low-income Americans, but the middle class. See, the economy touches everything. If we really want to be the greatest country on earth, we need to start improving the quality of life for our citizens. And I'm not saying give them something for nothing. No, in fact, I, I, <laughs> that's some Scandinavian shit. That's not how we do it here but give them an opportunity to earn it. I really do worry about the number of people that are being shut out from opportunity. If you look at a lot of the people that voted for Trump, many did so because they just, 
they felt like their quality of life was getting worse. They were tired of seeing their tax dollars go to help people in other communities or even sometimes other countries have a better life when they feel that they can't have one here. I don't agree with Trump on a lot of things, but I do think that he recognized and spoke to a pain in blue-collar America. He saw that they were tired, that they felt like they were being taken advantage of, that nobody in government was on their team. They lived through a recession that took their house and did not hold the corporate fat cats that took it from them accountable. The government propped them up. And if you have a complex understanding of the issue, you understand that there is something to be said for too big to fail. But if you are too busy to do that deep analysis, because, I don't know, you're at work, you're just barely meeting ends meet, well, that's kind of offensive. It's enough to piss you off. The government's supposed to have your back, but instead of helping you keep your house, they're giving bailout money to the banks that tried to take it in the first place. I think we seriously underestimate the impact that the recession had on our country psychologically. I mean, it's not just that. It's the companies that they grew up with, the companies that they believed in are... They're sending their jobs overseas. They're watching the heart of their towns just be ripped out. Jobs gone. Family businesses closed. Their kids don't want to stay here. They want to they want to go to a place that has jobs and who could blame them, right? I think that Trump saw that and I think that he spoke to it and he made them believe that he gave a shit. But he didn't. It's just another person taking advantage of this group of people. And don't get me wrong, they're not angels. They've got a lot to work on. But I think that there's a truth there that we can't ignore. The American Jobs Plan is looking to increase the quality of life for so many Americans. And not just elites or privileged people that can afford to go to college and get a four-year degree, or people that can afford to do an unpaid internship. No, the plan is looking to make jobs for everybody. In Joe Biden's speech, he said that 90% of the jobs created by the American Jobs Plan won't require a four-year degree and 75% of them won't require a two-year degree. Getting people jobs is good. It increases their quality of life, their utility, and their contributions to the government. Obviously, this is an oversimplification, but ultimately, I believe that this plan is an example of good government spending. Because what I realized here is that Biden is the first president of the middle class, the majority of Americans. That's who's going to have to pay off the national debt. So if we are investing in ourselves, is it not worth spending a little money? Joe Biden is betting big on the citizens of our country. He's doubling down on the idea that America's greatest asset is its people. If you give them a better education, if you make innovation financially possible by funding research and development, if you make it more affordable to raise kids here, if you give them access to opportunity, if you make healthcare affordable enough that people don't have to Uber to the emergency room, if you invest in your people, you invest in your country. He's betting big on us and the success of his agenda is going to come down to whether or not we can prove that we are worth the investment and show the world that we still know how to win. And now, some listener questions. All right, Jason from New York writes, dude. <laughs> First off, I love that you called me dude. Dude, what the fuck is going on in Afghanistan? I didn't even realize that we still had troops there. And now we're pulling out 
and people seem mad as hell about it on the internet. Should we be pulling out or no? And why make the anniversary September 11th? That seems kind of fucked up. Appreciate you answering this. Thanks for taking the time, Jason. Jason, first off, you're exceptional. Honestly, I think that we would probably be friends based on the structure of this email. So, yes, we've been in in Afghanistan since 9-11. We've never successfully been able to leave it. Um, Weird fact about Afghanistan, it's actually referred to as the graveyard of nations because many great countries have entered into Afghanistan with hopes of rebuilding it or helping them build the democracy or just a higher quality of life, and all of them end up staying there until they die. There's us, there's Russia, there's Great Britain. So to answer your question, should we be getting out of Afghanistan? You know, honestly, I think yes. Um, Yes, I do think that we should be getting out of it. I don't know that we should be doing a complete pull out of our troops. I think that leaving a small counterterrorism task force there would probably be beneficial, but I don't think that it's wrong to get out of there. But I think that the bigger issue here is that America needs to come up with a better strategy for... But I think that the bigger issue here is that America needs to come up with a better strategy um, for dealing with countries like Afghanistan. Afghanistan is in many ways a failed state. We are pushing for a democracy that is not supported by the people there and that's not necessarily their fault but the sad reality is that western democracy is not necessarily compatible with the culture in the region to some degree i think it's fair to say that they need more help than we have the resources to give them with all of that being said though i i do think that as soon as we withdraw our troops especially because we announce the day we plan to do it which is stupid um, we're gonna see an increase in terrorist activity in the region. Absolutely. Um, and I think, honestly, America will probably be the target of some of that activity. And we need to be prepared for that. I think that the intel contacts that we've established in the region will probably weaken over time. Uh, so to some degree, so we're gonna have to invest some resources in surveilling afghan so we are going to have to invest some sort of so we are going to have to invest some resources in keeping tabs on afghanistan and the other thing to be aware of is that there's a good possibility that as we leave china will backfill our presence in afghanistan There's a good chance that they will gobble up our influence in the region and not to establish democracy or increase women's rights or get girls to go to school, but instead to strip their minds bare and uh, just take advantage of the resources the region does have without any concern for social liberties, democracy, the environment, any of that. I think the hard question to wrestle with is, are we okay with that? Do we accept that not every problem is America's to fix? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that. I'm much more of a foreign policy interventionist. I support military action. I support statecraft. But we do have to prioritize. So, Jason, dude, 
I think that, yes, we should pull out of Afghanistan. I don't mean to make that an oversimplification. It's an incredibly complex problem. And I don't necessarily think that there is a one and done right answer. So (laughs) I hope that that shitty middle of the road answer was helpful to you in some way. Also, you're wonderful. Please keep sending in questions. I really enjoy reading them. Okay, next up we have Caitlin from Arizona. She says, Hi, Hillary. I really enjoy the show. I've been following you pretty closely on Twitter, and I watched your comments about DC statehood. It's been announced that Joe Manchin does not support DC statehood, which is a big blow to the effort. What do you think about this? Can it still be accomplished? Do you think it still should be accomplished? And have you Susan Collins' proposal that DC should rejoin Maryland. Okay, so Caitlin, the answer to your question is a pretty short one, actually. I think that it's pretty messed up that Joe Manchin won't support DC statehood. Um, One of the reasons that he listed for making that decision was that he thought we should propose a constitutional amendment, thus letting the people decide instead of utilizing Congress to make it a state. And my problem with that is that all 50 states in the union became states through congressional action. So I don't know why we would break with that tradition now, except to appease Republicans. And I just, I don't really think that this is a partisan move. There are 700,000 people in Washington, D.C., which is larger than the population of Wyoming. But Wyoming gets two members of the Senate. And D.C. does not. They have no senators. To me, that's taxation without representation. It's simple as that. I think that that point is especially salient because the people of D.C. actually pay higher higher federal taxes than most other Americans. Yet, they have no representation. People that oppose D.C. statehood basically do so because they argue that D.C. isn't like other areas in the country, right? Most of the people that live there are employed by the federal government. So Senator Tom Cotton actually argued that that though Wyoming has a much smaller population than D.C., it has a greater right to statehood because it is well-rounded and working class, with workers in mining, logging, and construction, Whereas most of the people that live in D.C. are employed by the federal government or in the industries of lobbying and consulting. And, you know, I mean, I agree that when you compare those two industries, yeah, Wyoming is probably more likable and the state that I would probably prefer to get a beer with. But I don't think that the industry you work in determines your value as a citizen of America. So that argument really falls flat with me. A lot of critics have said that this is a power grab by Democrats, and honestly, I think that it probably is. Adding D.C. as a state will likely give them two additional senators. And, you know, I mean, yes, they will benefit from that. But if you withhold statehood from D.C., you are denying 70,000 Americans a voice in the Senate. And that's just not good enough. Do better. Do better, Joe Manchin. Caitlin, you also mentioned Susan Collins, who is one of the senators that came out in support for D.C. not becoming its own state, but actually joining Maryland. And, um, (laughs) okay, so my thoughts on that are that I think that that is better than the current situation, because at least then they would have a voice in the Senate. But 
I don't love the idea of a senator from Maine talking about what should happen in Maryland. I mean, I I like I like Susan Collins for the most part. I think she's a really good senator and I think that she's great to her constituents, but I think that um other states making a decision about what should happen in Maryland doesn't make a lot of sense. So if they were going to move forward with the Maryland route, I would actually say that they should hold a referendum vote in Maryland and let the citizens of that state decide. Um, I think that it is important to note that the two senators from Maryland, which would be Senator Chris Van Hollen and Senator Tom Carper, they actually led the effort to reintroduce the D.C. statehood bill, which leads me to believe that Maryland supports D.C. becoming its own state, not just joining them. Okay, next up. Jeremy from North Carolina. So Jeremy says, hey, I've been listening to the pod and I mostly like it. However, can you please explain what makes you a moderate instead of just a more conservative Democrat? Okay, um, yeah, no problem. So I think that, first off, I think that conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans are moderates. So there's that. Um, but I guess if I get your meaning, and I've gotten a couple of questions about that, you're looking for my more Republican-friendly stances on things. Um, so <sighs> generally, I don't like to answer questions like this because I, am, I consider myself to be a transpartisan. Not meaning that I believe in bipartisanship, though I do, but that I believe we need to transcend the ideas of a two-party system. Like, it's just, it's not cutting it for us anymore. So I don't like to ascribe my beliefs to one party or the other, and I'm going to do it here only because I've gotten numerous questions that are some version of this. So I'm going to answer it once, and I'm going to answer it on the record. And then we're going to put this behind us. So here we go. Um... Issues that I tend to side with conservatives on are, so here we go. Some of the issues that I tend to side more with conservatives on would be guns. Um, I believe that we do have a constitutional right to have them. Obviously, if you've listened to the previous episode of the show, you know that I do support gun reform, but I do not support gun confiscation. Um... So there's that. Uh, I think that I'm generally pro-business and pro-growth. I support an aggressive trade policy. And I thought that, in theory, Trump holding China accountable was a good call. I think that the execution was abhorrent. I mean... A trade war on a whim only hurts American citizens, and nobody won that except China. <laughs> um, but I would like to see more of that. I support social programs, but I also do think that people take advantage of them, and I think that the government should be doing more to ensure that they don't. I can be really hawkish on foreign policy. I think we should be harder on the Middle East. I think that it was a mistake that Obama backtracked on what he had said in Crimea. I think that that made us look weak. I support America First style um, procurement, like buy American. I think that if you outsource jobs, there should be a financial consequence. So I guess that I'm anti-globalism in that way. I think that American jobs should stay on American soil. Um, 
I personally hate the tax man, um, but I do acknowledge that you don't get something for nothing. Um, I think additionally, I, I tend to really, really support individual liberty. And while that might not be traditionally Republican, it is traditionally libertarians. Like, I firmly believe that we should not limit free speech in most instances. And I think that, you know, you have every right to say something offensive. And I think that whoever you say it to has every right to punch you in the mouth because you're being an asshole. I think that this is how the universe moves towards equilibrium. I support religious liberty unless you're directly infringing upon the God-given rights of another person. This is a weird one, and I'm not sure if it uh, coincides with one ideology over the other, or over another, but this does kind of feel like the time to air this grievance. I think that if you own your home and you want to, I don't know, build one of those tiny homes in the backyard, it's not up to the city government whether or not you can. If that is your land, you should be able to build a tiny home on it. I know that that sounds weird and specific. I'm not going through that experience myself, but I think that that right there is an example of government overreach. Jeremy, I think that I probably didn't answer your question as comprehensively as I could be. Those are just some of the things that are coming to mind right now. I know that there are more, um, but that's what I got for you right now. So thank you guys so much for submitting listener questions. If you would like to submit a listener question, you can always send them to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. Or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching Moderate Party Podcast. And slide into those DMs. Let's get back to the episode. The first 100 days matter a lot in a presidency, mainly because the best time to enact ambitious change is at the start of your term. You have the American people on your side, and you kind of have limited time to act because whichever party is in power usually gets stomped on in the midterms. So if you have big goals, you need to start working on them right away. It's sort of your window to pitch your vision for the country to the American people. The first hundred days are revealing because I think that a person's wish list says a lot about them. If you could only have one or two things, and they could potentially be the only things that you would ever be known for, what would they be? For Joe Biden, it's simple. Beat COVID, create jobs. The vaccine rollout has been an incredible achievement. I watch the news really closely and it's easy to get sucked into the negativity and the fear. The situation in India is incredibly dire right now. Variants are scary. We are nowhere near out of the woods yet. But if we zoom out a little bit, it's easy to realize that we are actually living through history right now. This stuff, the pandemic, the stay at home orders, the vaccine rollout. People will read about us someday in this moment, and I firmly believe that the work our country has done on the vaccine will be looked at as one of the greatest achievements in the last century. Operation Warp Speed occurred under the Trump administration, and that got the vaccine developed, but the rollout is on Biden. It's on his administration, and honestly, it's on you, and it's on me. All in all, though, I think we're doing an incredible job, and truthfully, as corny as it sounds, it makes me feel really proud to be an American. Joe Biden's first 100 days have been more ambitious than any president since FDR. He's pushed infrastructure, education, vaccines, and he doesn't show any signs of slowing down. I think that some of this is why experience matters in a president. 
Biden is the first president that we've had in a long time that still has any love left for Congress. He grew up there. He served there. He was forged there. He understands the place. He knows the people. He's doing a lot with executive orders, but he's also one of the first presidents that I can remember that is not lambasting Congress at every opportunity or blaming all of the problems on them. He's not forsaken an institution that honestly makes it a little bit difficult to love sometimes. I think he's going to achieve a lot. But how do we judge the first 100 days of a presidency? How do you measure something that abstract and intangible? It's not easy and there is no answer that's absolutely right. Just take, for example, Biden campaigned on restoring the soul of America. How the fuck do you do that? What is plus one soul or minus one soul? How do you know? I'm a ginger, so I obviously can't tell you. That's a deep cut South Park joke uh, for the young people, elder millennials. You get it. I think that the easiest way to measure success in the first hundred days has to do with, as Trump would say, promises made and promises kept. So let's talk about the promises that Joe Biden made. COVID, right? He largely campaigned on getting our shit together on COVID. When he took office in January, Biden pledged 100 million vaccine doses in his first 100 days. At the end of March, he doubled that commitment. And we still hit it. The U.S. has so far delivered a total of 235 million vaccine doses. And around 16 million of those were given during the Trump administration. Points, you know, snaps for Trump. But that still means that 220 million have been delivered during President Biden's first 100 days in office. Not to mention, he did establish the federal mask mandate, at least, you know, on federal property. He is not king of the universe, so he cannot just make a decree everywhere that we will wear them. But I do think that you can see a change in the rhetoric surrounding COVID has yielded a positive result. And that's what he told us he was going to give us. We were going to take it seriously. He was going to get schools reopened. He did that, too. So, you know, I'm going to say that for Biden, that's a win. Biden campaigned hard on the middle class. Every president does. It's the it's the biggest voting block in America. You want to win it. But the difference with Biden, in my opinion, is that he actually is doing it. I think that he is truthfully the first blue collar president that we've had in a really long time. And by that, I mean his policy agenda. It is really built with the middle class in mind. He's investing in people, not companies. But I think that a lot of presidents tend to align themselves either with big companies and thus high-income Americans, or they focus so much on low-income Americans and the middle class is always lost along the way. But when you look at the American Jobs Act, the people that are going to benefit from that the most are middle-class Americans. He's associated climate change with jobs and as a result, is going to be creating a lot of them, <laughs> which makes that spending a little less scary. The American Families Plan, that is directly aimed at helping middle-class Americans. Even when you look at the care economy, if you don't know what that is, in the American Jobs Plan, Biden has a lot of funding for the care economy, which is basically when you have to take care of an older relative or like in-home care, like hospice, all of that. 
That is because middle-class Americans are struggling. They're struggling to provide care for their older relatives. People are living longer. And the cost of healthcare has ballooned. So we, like, people are having to take care of their relatives in their own home because they can't afford an in-home care aid. Or even if they can, the wait list is so long or they don't have the resources. And Biden's looking to change that. His policies are directly impacting the middle class and solving their problems. And that, honestly, is refreshing. I know a lot of this episode kind of sounds like a PSA for Biden. And I don't necessarily love that, but it is my truth. I believe in the middle class. You guys should know that. I think that moderates represent the middle class. Those are my people. Those are your people. So it excites me to see somebody kind of, you know, move past some of the culture war bullshit and just focus on what people really, really need. And not just that, believing in our country again. The thing that I have found the most exciting about Biden's presidency is that I am excited to see what America is going to do in the next decade because I truly believe anything is possible. I listened to Trump for four years talk about how our best days are behind us and everything is so doom and gloom. We need to make America great again because it once was and now it's not. And it is so fucking refreshing to hear a president get up there and say that America is the greatest country in the world and we can do anything that we set our mind to. It makes you, it makes you proud to be here and excited to see what we can achieve. In the end, that's how I'm judging the success of Biden's first 100 days. I think that he has been successful because I am excited to see what's going to happen next. I'm excited to see what America is going to achieve. Competitions with countries like China are not going to be won by yelling at them on Twitter. You have to win by investing in your people and out-competing them. And China is a very formidable opponent. I think that Biden said it best when he said that we are in a fight for the 21st century. And I am excited about the first 100 days of the presidency because I can actually see a path to us winning it. What do you think? Let me know. Send me your thoughts on Biden's first 100 days to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. All right, guys, that's it for me. Hopefully by the next episode, I will be a little bit less sick. So you won't have to listen to my creaky door voice. Um, <laughs> honestly, I think I'm acquiring a Joe Biden sexy grandpa whisper. But you'll have to let me know. All right. See you next time, guys.